Welcome to our part two of Positive vs Punitive, What Happened to the Middle Ground. Hopefully you've listened to last week's episode before you've listened to this week's episode so that you know where this um, episode sort of started and where it's going as it continues through. Hopefully you'll enjoy our second part as much as you've enjoyed our first part and we look forward to getting your feedback right to the very end. Thank you all for listening and we'll speak to you all next week. You've only got to look at this positive training and the dog will never get to the end goal. And all that the owner will be doing is essentially managing that dog for life. And that's not training. Managing a dog is not training. Um, Management is part of training in terms of whilst you're going through the process of teaching the dog what is expected and what is required. But the bottom line is, if you don't actually do that, you will just manage that dog for life. And that's going to be a very miserable coexistence for the owner and the dog to be in that situation. I think that when we start training, especially young dogs, and we're using reward-based training clickers and we're building rep- uh, behavior with reward, what we're telling the dog is, yes, this is what I want. I want this sit. I want you to walk by my side. I want you to come back when I call you. But we're not really telling the dog, I don't want you to do this or that or the other. When I give you that signal, that command, I want you to come back to me. I don't want you to think, oh, well, I don't feel like coming back when I want to go sniff this weed or chase a squirrel or whatever. And to me, what I like to do is train them first what they should do. So once the dog knows what he's supposed to do, then I have no qualms about applying a consequence when he doesn't pay attention to that or he decides he's just not going to listen to me. That's my basic take on it. So I think you have to teach them what you don't want them to do as well as teach them what you want them to do. My personal approach to it is to train a lot of what I want first with reward-based training and then apply a consequence when they don't follow that instruction. However, there are dogs that you have to go the other way around with. You have to apply the consequence to stop the terrible, unwanted, intolerable behavior. And once you've stopped that, you can then reward what they give you after that. When they're not doing that anymore, they're giving you something acceptable, then you can reward that and you can start building that up. And then the dog has a good concept of, oh, if I do this, bad things happen. If I do this, good things happen. And it's an easy choice for the dog to make. But I think both sides have to be trained. I just had a, um, a review sent to me by a client. Um, she's been She's got a Romanian rescue dog. And for two years, she's been seeing positive only trainers trying to train this dog not to be aggressive to other dogs, not to bark its head off at everything it saw when it was outside. And we spent about three hours together on a Friday morning. And she goes every Friday, there's a, a, clo- a group that walk reactive dogs or aggressive dogs, sorry, Rob, around, <laughs> <laughs> around um, a little town not far from here. And... Um, she could never go on the walk. So today was the third week since I've seen her. And today she made the whole walk, mixing with other dogs and following them around and being part of the walk. Um, and she's, she's absolutely over the moon. As she said, in two years of working with positive only trainers, she's never been able to do that. And one afternoon of teaching this dog a few consequences and showing her how to apply those and how to keep that going, saying you can't do this, you can do this, you can't do that. You get treats for doing this. 
And within three weeks, the dog made a, a complete walk with 15 or 20 other dogs and never barked, never reacted once. So you have to teach them the good stuff, what you want. And you also have to teach them that you can't do the bad stuff. I think there's a common misconception as well that using rewards, there's no, that you can't go wrong with it. And I know Rob said before about distracting dogs or trying to, uh, you know, lots of people will have the dog jumping at them and then throw the food on the floor, like he was saying earlier. And it really, you know, it seems like a distraction, but it's really, it's not training them or it's re- well, what it's really doing is training them to continue doing that behavior that we don't like. Um, and I've seen quite a lot. Um, I've seen several, several cases of um, resource guarding, which has made, been made worse and worse and worse by positive trainers coming in and telling them to um, reward the growling or to throw food. And it's not the only behaviour issue, obviously, where this it can be made worse, just as an example. But um, yeah, I just thought I'd just mention that, that I think sometimes we think, well, how wrong can I go with rewarding my dog, by feeding my dog, by, you know, rewarding in, in all those ways? And actually, it can go really, really wrong. I totally agree with you. And again, keep on bringing it back to our, our human human babies. I know nobody likes to call the dogs dog babies, but um, our human babies, we everybody says to you, don't spoil our child, don't spoil our child. Everywhere you go, you know, you have mums, you have aunties, you have grandsons, stop spoiling the child. You'll ruin her, you'll ruin her. Especially very much with my little girl, who apparently I have ruined, but I didn't mean to. But yeah, you, if you spoil them, you'll get that. But then I suppose if you're constantly positively reward, uh, rewarding the dog or distracting with positive f- food, etc., all the time, the dog is going to end up a spoiled dog. We mustn't confuse positive only training with training because it isn't training. It's it's kind of just like, well, if I can get you to take this food. Will you, for at least a little while, forget about the thing that you were doing? And the dog says, yes, while you're throwing food on the floor, I will forget about jumping up on this person. But going back to what Al said, the trouble with that is it never actually teaches the dog not to jump on the person. It never knows that it's not allowed to jump on the person. So you're forever shoveling food at the dog. And eventually he stops jumping up, not because he's trained, but because he's so fat, he can't. That's not dog training. (laughs) <laughs> Sorry, I say that in a caring way, but uh, yeah, that's not dog training. So exactly as Al was saying, having incentivized the dog and trained the dog to recognize that when I've got a piece of food, I want you to focus on me. You then have to say to him, but that also means that you can't do this or this or this. And then the dog understands that actually you asking him not to jump up was not a choice. He has to do it. I was watching a, a dog training show with a TV dog trainer. But she was working with somebody with a dog with a separation anxiety. And this dog, the owners would go out the house and like 10 seconds later, the dog would start barking and bark and bark and bark and bark and bark and bark. bark. So she worked with these owners, uh, getting them to just go out the house for three seconds, go out the house for three seconds, come back in, go out the house for three seconds, come back in, go out the house for three seconds, come back in. And the owners were going, wow, this is amazing. He's not barking. And I was watching it thinking, but he wasn't barking after three seconds before. You haven't trained him to do anything. He was, he was already doing 10 seconds. And she said to the owners, well, what I would hope is that I could come back in a month's time and you can do five good minutes. And I thought, it's going to take them a month to do five minutes. How long will it be before they can leave the house? You know, they're going to have to phone up, cancel the kids' school. You're not going to school. We can't leave the house. Um, we'll have to resign. We'll have to give up our jobs because we can't leave the house more than five minutes. 
But hopefully in about two or three years, we'll be able to go out for a good couple of hours. Well, of course, you know what happens to that dog because it ends up in rescue. They'll get rid of it because a month for five minutes is just not feasible. Now, I agreed with everything she did up to that point about how to positively reinforce it for being separated and so on. Agreed with that. But the only thing I add is that in my training, I'll also teach the dog to control its own arousal levels. So if I go, uh, be quiet, the dog understands it can't work itself up into the state where it's barking and howling all the time. And so that combined with all that positive reinforcement, my owners will get a dog within days that they'll say, I can go out and leave the dog and it doesn't bark because it understands it's not allowed to carry on barking. But when it's quiet, it gets something that it really likes. And again, going back to what we talked before, it's that combination that enables you to keep the dog and not have to put it in kennels. But I suspect that those owners will get rid of that dog. I had a client and the symptoms of the separation anxiety were probably the most extreme I'd seen. When they left the house, the dog would have explosive diarrhea almost immediately when they left the house. But uh, they also had the problem in the house. They couldn't actually walk out of the room without the dog following them. So exactly as Rob said there, um, when they told the dog to stay in the other room, they actually had to tell the dog, no, I've asked you to do this and you stay there. Within three days, they could go out, no problem at all. Um, and there wasn't a time limit on it. They didn't have to be out for five minutes, 10 minutes, 15 minutes. They, they just made that made that change in the dog's head. that Actually, this wasn't acceptable um, to be stuck to them like that and to demand from them that attention constantly. Um, and whether or not it was a... Um, a choice of the dogs to have this diarrhea or it was just stressing itself at the point when they went out the door all stopped within three days the stories that you're all sharing with me they build confidence in me that there is another way now i know from our group and i know from our amazing experts our group experts all believe in very similar principles if not the exact principles that you teach rob so what type of people are coming on your course and what can they learn that is this middle ground we're all looking for when i look at the people just on this podcast they all come from such varying backgrounds there are dog walkers dog trainers dog groomers all sorts of people and what i love about the course is i get people who come on there who've never done dog training in their lives who don't necessarily want to do dog training they may just want to understand dogs better right up to people who are actually doing it um, i've had positive only trainers come on the course who have already started to recognize that maybe they're not being as successful as they'd like and I think a lot of them are already starting to think, well, I know I probably should be teaching owners how to correct the dog in some way, but I'm just not sure how to do that effectively. Um, I had somebody on my last course who was a positive only trainer, but he'd again started to realise that it just wasn't working very well and that he was getting lots of clients who were frustrated or not successful. And he and I talk about this, uh, the fallout of that, you know, because there is real fallout. We kind of delude ourselves that, nothing bad is going to happen. But if I don't deliver a good enough service, that dog may end up in rescue. It may end up put to sleep, not because it wasn't trainable and not because the owner couldn't train it, but because I didn't give them the tools to succeed, which means I'm culpable in that failure. But the trouble is that very rarely goes back to the trainer. The trainer very rarely finds out that actually the owners were unsuccessful and what terrible things happened to the dog. So I get a real demographic of different people coming on the course, which I love. And it encourages me then to, to be 
creative in the way that I'm training them because some of them want different things from others. So we get a really good mix of people who come onto the course, um, either because they want to further their own business or they just are interested in looking at a different way of training dogs. It's, it's great. It's really, really good. You said something that was really um, important for our listeners to to take on board. Where we are talking about positive training, we're talking about the extreme of positive training now. And just like when we speak, spoke last week, we said about the extreme of negative trainers. There is a huge amount of negative trainers who want to do it better. And there's loads and loads of positive trainers who want to be better. And there's lots and lots of good trainers who constantly are open to the concept of if this isn't working, what will work for this dog? You know, we talk about training the dog in front of us. So when we're talking about the extremes, although they are small numbers, they do exist in enough way to be vocal and, and make a difference and an impact on what the general population here in. Do you think that, you know, if there's people listening to this and they're thinking, well, actually, how do I find this sort of middle ground? What is it that they're looking for? Not so much in the specific trainer, but what is the ethos that they're looking for? So I think for me, I generally advise owners, that if you see a trainer that advertises, I am positive only or force free that unless you've got a very young puppy or you want to go into something like um heel work to music something where there is there is no need to punish the dog for getting it wrong they're fine but if you've got a, a companion dog that has got some issues that you want to stop it from doing that's when you probably need somebody who's more rounded i think positive reinforcement is great for teaching new behaviors but the trouble with it is whenever you've got a dog who says, actually, no, I'm doing something that you don't want me to do, but I want to keep doing. That's where positive only training tends to fail. So I would be saying to the client, ask the trainer, and what do I do if the dog doesn't do it? If I offer him the treat and he doesn't want it, if I show him the toy and he refuses, if I ask him to be quiet and he just stands in my face barking at me, what do I do? And if the trainer says, well, you just need to use more exciting food or you just need to buy more interesting toys um, or you walk out of the room and, and give him a timeout or you put him in a cage for a timeout, they're probably not going to be very helpful to you. Um, we have lots of terms now. Uh, we have uh, one that bizarrely, I think, a lot of the positive only organisations signed up to, which was a thing called LEMA, least intrusive, minimally aversive. Um, and so lots of organizations sign up to this to say that we will use the least intrusive and most minimally aversive consequence if necessary. And yet they're positive only organizations. And I think, well, that doesn't say that you do anything that's nice. It just says we'll try not to be horrible, but we may. So I created what I called Prama, which is positive reinforcement and minimally aversive. And it was based on Lima. But I wanted to say that my trainers will be encouraged to use positive reinforcement. But if that doesn't work and the dog says, no, I still think I'd rather do the something else, then we can use a minimal aversive. And there's something I see a lot on positive only sites where they say that any form of correction is abusive and cruel. They'll recount papers that have compared the most severe forms of pos positive punishment with positive reinforcement and not surprisingly say, the dogs did better with the positive reinforcement. Well, of course they did. But what you never see papers on is where they use a balance of positive reinforcement and minimal, non-abusive, non-physical aversion. And those are the dogs that statistically always do the best, that have that balance. 
when Claire explained a little bit about this before our call, I literally was like, yeah, yeah, where can I do that? Where can I do that? Because that is genuinely, I think, for most people who love their dogs, but want their dog to live in a household peacefully, you know, that's what they need. Like our household, my husband doesn't particularly like the dogs. He doesn't hate them, but he's not a dog lover. So if he's trying to go and get something out of the out of the kitchen fridge and he's got sets of pattern behind him, loads of little spaniels whacking into his legs, not listening. He's like, Joe, call the dogs. And he it's just that he wants a life where those dogs live and he lives with each other calmly. And I think that's what just most people want, isn't it? They just want a dog that can live with them calmly. That's exactly what they want. They just want a dog. You know, I don't want my dog to be perfect. Um, he'll never be perfect. And the reason he'll never be perfect is because nobody is. God knows I'm not. Far from it. And I make better choices because I understand there are consequences to making poor choices. So I try to make better ones. And it's just that simple with my dog. And my clients feel the same way. They don't want a perfect dog, but they want a dog that's safe. And I would urge you, if you're a positive only or force-free trainer, and you look at what you're doing, and in your heart of hearts, you can see that it's not working. It's not even working for you. Your dog is still not reliable. I went and saw a client really recently. She had her positive only trainer come out to her house who brought her own dog, and her opening line to the client was, please don't judge me by the behavior of my dog. Well, I think if you're going to bring your dog to help with the training, but you want to apologize for its behavior, even before you start, there's probably something not going well in your training. But I want you to think about the repercussions when you then give that advice to the owner that you can't even make it work. And so I would urge those people to accept that if what you're doing isn't working, do something about it. Don't just keep charging people money for it. If it's not working for you, it's probably not going to work for them either. They don't have your skills. So they're probably going to be even less successful than you are. And then morally, I think, how can you charge them for it? I did a Google Scholar search on all the papers using comparing positive versus punitive training. And I found about eight papers, I think. And I went through the abstract of every one of these, had a read through. And in every one of them, what was actually compared was using reward-based training versus shock collars, prong collars, um, you know, seriously harsh methods, but not to stop behaviors it compared those two methods to, in the context of trying to build behaviors, improve a sit, improve a recall, improve a down. But it's just common sense that you can't build a behavior by beating hell out of a dog, can you? You've got to use rewards to train a dog to sit or to come or to lay down. So every time you see a, a research paper that says that Reward-based training is by far and away the better way to train dogs versus punitive training, and this paper says so. Look at it in detail, because probably what it's saying is that I use a reward to train a dog to sit, and I use a prong collar to train a dog to sit, and the dog set better with the reward. Well, of course it will. It's common sense. So be aware of that. The, the comparisons and the papers that are out there are not fair. So I just wanted to, to sort of roll off of what some of what everyone else was saying really there, and in regards to what Rob and Rose and Al have said and a lot of the ladies that I help on the group and a lot of the conversations we have with the ladies are quite deep and they tell me stories about their 
you know, history and where they and their dogs have come from. And one of the things that, that comes out a lot is that they have become literally terrified to correct their dog, okay, because they've been told that correcting the dog will damage the relationship, it will break the relationship down, you know, the dog won't love them anymore, all these kinds of things, and, and just saying, you know, you, you should never do that because you won't rebuild that, you won't rebuild that. As you know, <laughs> I share a lot of videos of me training my dogs, and one of the reasons for sharing those videos is because I want to be able to say to these ladies and to the clients that I'm helping, I use consequence with my dogs. If I've taught them a behavior that I want and they understand the behavior and I've used a reward-based training to teach my dog what I want, I will use a consequence if the dog decides that it doesn't want to follow through with those things. My dogs don't look unhappy. My dogs don't look shut down. My dogs are having a great time. And I think it just helps to build a little confidence. If as trainers, we can be confident to actually show our own dogs working and our own dogs looking happy in life, we can help to build clients' confidence in that what we do actually works. It's not just talk. It's factual and it's real and it's there for them to actually see. And it's just something that I personally feel really useful. I will send them videos and say, this is me using this correction with my dog. And they're like, oh, okay, that's all right. I'm okay with that. And I think it just helps. So I've been working with a Doberman recently and she's been to both extremes before me. The first one was the positive only chucked her out puppy class because the dog was dangerous and um, he was just an she's just an excited 14 week old puppy doberman but everything else in the class was quite small and fluffy um then this positive owner came around the house and was in the owner's opinion scared of the dog so she then left it a bit she was advised not to walk the dog because it's just too arousing for this dog to be out do lots of enrichment training at home um to tire the dog's brain out um and then she went to another trainer who was extremely forceful with this dog to teach her to lie down they would shove the dogs on the floor um, and then stand on the lead to keep them in the down consequently the dog then didn't like being touched then she found me and we've had three one-to-ones rather than a behavioral consultation because I didn't feel that she'd be able to do too much in one day because this dog, again, so over aroused, never been to a park. It's now 14 months old. Um, when I went into the house, the dog jumped all over me. I came away with bruises because she was so excited jumping on me and using the middle ground with this dog, teaching her the good behavior and rewarding that and teaching her that, she, no, you can't jump at me. I don't want you jumping anymore. And teaching the owner how to teach them, don't jump at the strangers in the house. Focus on me when we're at the park. And she's managed to find that with me. And she's had great success now. The dog has not jumped at anyone. No more bruises on people. She can now walk at the park and the dog is not lunging. I mean, she was lunging in a friendly, I want to play with you, Nana. But she's not let her off yet. Um, but she has got what she wants in her dog for now. And she's really pleased about that. But I thank rob for the cia because 
I learned on his course how to help in this middle ground. I've been training a long time and I was actually starting to doubt the fact that I use corrections on dogs because of all the positive only trainers out there. And Rob has built, and everyone else at the CIA as well, fantastic group of people, um, have built that confidence up. And I am now getting quicker results with dogs. My clients are lovely, all of them, and I know how to explain it to them properly. And, and that's thanks to you. So thank you so much, Rob, for that. Thank you for that, Tanya. <laughs> and it's, it's feedback like that. I, I can almost imagine people listening to this as they're driving to work or whatever going, Oh God, yeah, that, that's what I'm looking for. I'm, I'm looking for the middle ground. I don't need, I need the consequence, but I, I'm happy to do the positive rewarding. And I'm all I'm all for that. But I need the dog when I'm saying, actually, no, no, don't do that. I've got to have both sides mm. of the coin. So I had someone contact me with a basset howl, I think they said they had. And basically this dog was scavenging. So this is not a real, this is not a big problem, scavenging. If you're telling me that that is your dog's only problem, you've probably got things good, to be honest. But the trainer that they had had before had told them never to say no to your dog. So when the person said, well, what if the dog picks up food? The trainer then said, oh, um, don't let your dog don't ever put your dog in a position where they're going to eat food off the floor. So then the person said, but, but if I could do that, I wouldn't be paying you money. I be paying you money. <laughs> so the trainer's response was for the dog to wear a muzzle to stop it from scavenging. So I just thought, well, isn't telling the dog no less punitive than this dog living with a muzzle on outside? I don't, I can't understand. Um, so that, that was just one thing that just blew my mind. But there is obviously more extreme cases as well where the, the, the trainer will say or someone will say, never tell your dog no or never pull your dog um, on the lead and whatever. But they'll have then you'll have no problem having to put your dog to sleep because it's bitten someone or put your dog in rescue because you can't control it. But all of these things are so much more punitive than actually just telling your dog no, telling your dog what they can do and what they can't do. Um, and I think a lot of people don't, or I don't know if they, they, they don't, maybe they don't see that that could be a thing that that might happen if you don't tell your dog no. So you'll get people phoning. I've had like a few people phone quite frantically, even, um, within the last few weeks of December, can you come out this, um, this side of the year? Um, because they're at the end of their tether. They want their dog, they're thinking about putting their dog into rescue because they, or dogs that have come out of rescue, but putting them back into rescue. But they're scared to tell their dogs no because they've been told that they can't tell their dog or they're scared to correct their dog because they've been told that it's evil. But isn't if we're going to say any of them things are evil, isn't it more evil to put your dog back in rescue? I think what you sort of touch upon there is what our group is seeing is they go to a positive only trainer. And when they start asking the questions, well, how do I correct this? How do I correct that? There is no answer. So they are left thinking, well, if you don't know and I don't know, what do I do? And then instead of there being an answer, they are just told more positive things to do with the dog, which may distract it for two seconds. But that's it. And I've found that with the customers that I haven't been training dogs for super long. I was a customer of Robert's with a big, massive Borbell Mastiff who was trying to kill my cat. And that's how I started talking. Uh, that's how I met Rob. And I'm just imagine if I didn't, tell my dog no 
I was already my dog. I don't know how many homes she's had, but at least six. I was at her at least seventh home when she was two years old. And if I didn't tell my dog, no, actually, you can't have my cat for breakfast, lunch or dinner. She would have been in a, in another home or in a rescue or something like that. Or God forbid, maybe even put down. If she keeps going back to rescue homes, how long can they house them for? Um, but I just, yeah, I just find it amazing that people will find saying no to just that you're going to break your dog's spirit. If you tell your dog no, you're going to destroy your dog. But then when your dog bites someone and it gets put down. And going back to what you were saying earlier on, when you're saying that trainers will tell people to do things and these things just aren't doable and they're not feasible. The the few customers, as I said, I haven't been dog training for super long. Um, the few customers that I've had so far, they I haven't had a customer where I'm their first trainer. And they've always, I've had, the, um, <clears throat> they've always said, oh, thanks, it makes so, so much sense and blah, blah, blah. But they was always made to feel like it was them doing something wrong. Because that's the way the trade, when when it's not working, instead of admitting, oh, it's not working, okay, let's try something else. Or maybe my methods aren't suitable for you. Or maybe just saying, I don't know what to do with your dog. I'm so sorry. I tried. This is what I thought. And it's not worked. I'm really sorry. They're then just making them feel like they're doing something wrong. And I found that I've had owners get quite tearful when they've seen their dog do something just because they've told their dog no and enforce the consequence or reinforce their word. Um, <clears throat> they just finally feel like that they can they're on like a path to kind of success with their dog like a positive relationship with their dog I think this is where again it just comes all down to common sense I mean um, it we have to say no to people in our lives to have healthy professional personal relationships with other people we have to set boundaries no one wants to be a doormat that's being walked all over um, we have to we have to say no sometimes. And um, I think in, you know, whatever relationship, even just the human to human relationship, when you don't know where you stand, you don't understand what those boundaries are. You can't relax. You're stressed. You can't enjoy that relationship. But even if those boundaries weren't what you were hoping for, either way, once you know what the boundaries are, once you know what is and what isn't allowed, you can relax and you can enjoy the relationship um, much better. So. I think um, what um, Claire mentioned earlier about people, uh, again, this uh, a misconception sometimes of thinking that using some kind of consequence in dog training will damage the relationship between the, um, the handler, the owner and the dog. Um, and I, it's just always the complete opposite. And I've had so many people say, I love my dog so much more now. The dog's so much more relaxed. The dog knows what's expected of them. I think it's just cruel to let the dog just go on guessing, getting things wrong. The owner's not frustrated because they just are completely exasperated that the dog's not listening to me because there's no consequence. And the dog would prefer to go and chase that squirrel than, you know, the, you know, the chicken or whatever treat you've got for them. Um, and as soon as the dog starts to realize, oh, I'm not allowed to do that thing anymore, all those rewards that the owner had and the praise they were trying to give the dog, which the dog thought, I, I couldn't care less, suddenly that becomes so relevant. And so they can both enjoy the relationship. But I think it's those blurred boundaries and that all that lack of boundaries. And most um, owners I go to see are just kind of almost ripping their hair out because they, they just think, well, it's impossible to, to create these boundaries. It's impossible for me to say no to my dog in a way that I don't have to be abusive and harsh 
Um, but the words I'm using and what I'm trying to do right now just isn't working. How do I communicate with my dog in the way that they understand, um, but do it as mildly as possible? And that's what we're all about is um, as trauma trainers is being able to say, you know, in, in, you know, in quotes, no, um, but with, with, with the most minimal aversion possible, as mildly as possible. Um, but yeah, I, I just don't have so many people saying, oh, God. I love him. I love her so much more now. Oh, we can have a good relationship. It's it's just wonderful. And that works both ways. Rose just said some very, very, very valid points there. And things that Tanya and Rupert were saying was, was so valid in terms of, of the information we get from the clients and how transformational this can be. But for me, I think one of the key things from a gun dog perspective, as well as from a pet owner perspective, is with the positive only training, what we're seeing is so much where it's bribery and trading. And trading is the word that we're seeing a lot. Um, and if you think about what a retrieve is, for me, when I'm talking to a, a complete beginner to gun dog training, when we teach a dog to retrieve, we're teaching the dog to share. We're not trading. We're teaching the dog to share with us. So we make it rewarding and valuable for the dog to give it back by giving the dog affection and rewarding the dog for giving that this item. The problem when you get to things like trading or swapping, at some point that dog's going to get something in its mouth that it shouldn't have that is potentially dangerous. If you don't have something that the dog values to trade, you're scuppered. You're done. That's it. And potentially your dog could swallow something poisonous or dangerous or sharp, something life threatening. At some point, the dog might have something. And like you said, Joe, about the lady cooking a chicken every time she took it out for a walk. What are we going to do? Cook a chicken every time we want to do a retrieve with a dog to swap a cooked chicken for a retrieve. <laughs> there comes a point where this becomes ridiculous and we are literally almost in that situation where the dog is actually they we always talk about are we bribing the dog but I get it I think it gets to the point where the dog is bribing us well have you got something good enough that I'm going to actually let this trade happen so rather than us bribing the dog the dog is now bribing us and we're going well I need to up my stakes here so this wasn't good enough so I'm going to bring this in that no you don't want that I'll give you this instead it gets ridiculous and the relationship isn't there. That isn't a relationship with the dog. Um, that's the dog basically saying what's in it for me, because if it's not in it for me, what I value, you're not part of this anymore. And I think this is the, the problem with positive only training is we're allowing the dog to make those choices and the dogs to make the demands. And if you look at what we're seeing with pet dogs at the moment, the amount of attention-seeking behaviours we're seeing that is being misunderstood and people think they've got separation anxiety. And Rob will say, I know that very few dogs we genuinely we, we see where the owners think they've got separation anxiety. A lot of these dogs, it's attention-seeking, not separation anxiety. We're seeing dogs that are demanding, that are refusing, you know, that are vocalising. And it's all this thing where don't let the dog get over threshold. You cannot live your life normally with your dog constantly trying to keep the dog under threshold. That's not reality. It's not real life. We have to be able to live our lives. 
So I think it's time to get realistic about what we're doing with our dogs and do the best for the dog and teach them this is how we live. A um, couple of points. One, um, I was reminded of by something Rupert said, which um, in my 30, however many years it is now, of doing dog training, I've probably told people to put their dogs to sleep maybe four or five times, maybe half a dozen times. But I see on positive-only forums all the time people saying things like, well, you should try this, but if it doesn't work, you may have to put him to sleep. And I think, what? So you would rather kill the dog than use an aversive. Um, how is that positive only? You'd kill him. You'd say, I, I cannot use any sort of aversive. I can't use anything that might upset the dog in some way, but I am totally comfortable with killing it if my training doesn't work. And when I look at how few dogs I believe with issues, positive only works, I think how many dogs are getting put to sleep that didn't need putting to sleep because the expert tells the owner that the only thing for this dog is to be put to sleep. And I just think so many of those dogs could probably relatively straightforwardly have been trained if somebody just taught him to stop it. And I have so many clients. I mean, I just couldn't tell you the number of clients where one of the first things they say to me after I've gone out and seen them is how much more settled he seems, how much calmer he's, how much less stressed he is by the introduction of some sort of consequence that said, you have to stop this. And we see this with our own children. Right from when they're little, they start throwing a tantrum we don't go off and get the sweets and the biscuits out and say, if you stop that tantrum, I'm going to give you something you like. We say, ah, stop that right now. Stop that. And you see the child goes into the sort of, <laughs> and then we say, okay, now let's go and do something else. But we make it very clear to them right from when they're little, you can't continue to escalate this until you become hysterical because that doesn't help anyone. And why do we think it's any different with dogs? It's exactly the same thing. And then touching on something Claire just said, um, some of you may remember I shared it on Facebook because I was so wound up by this case I went and saw with a Romanian street dog. They'd had it for, I think, something like a year. It was traumatized when it came over, as many of them are. Um, it found a cupboard under the stairs where it went and hid. And a year later, it was still hiding in the cupboard under the stairs. They'd never seen this dog voluntarily walk anywhere. When they took it out into the garden, they used to have to go into the cupboard, lift it up, take it out into the garden, go to the toilet, and then just stay there. They'd have to pick it up, bring it back, put it in the cupboard. When they fed it, they used to have to put its food in the cupboard and walk away. The dog wouldn't eat while they were there. They had to put the food in and walk away, and eventually they would go back and look in the cupboard and the bowl was empty. But they never saw it eat. It would never voluntarily come out of the cupboard in the year that they'd had it. And they'd had three positive-only trainers was it three or two? Two or three positive only trainers out before me. And what they've been told all the time is this dog is so stressed and so traumatized. What you must never do is put it over threshold, whatever this threshold is. And we hear this term, and clients say it to me all the time. They don't have any idea what that means, but they're told this phrase all the time. Keep the dog under threshold. Well, the problem with that is the dog never learns how to deal with distress if you don't introduce it to distress. So when I went and saw them, I said, okay, what I'm going to get you to do is put it under a little bit of distress 50 times a day because I want it to learn how to cope. So obviously we didn't use any punishment on this dog. The dog didn't need punishment, but we would just do little things designed to make it go, oh, oh I don't think I can cope with that. Oh, do you know what? Maybe, maybe I can cope with that. 
oh, actually, it turns out I can cope with that. And then as soon as it got to a point where we were coping, we would get it to do something else. And, so, and it was really little things like I might tell them to take that vase off the mantelpiece and put it in the cupboard with it. And it would go, oh, my God, what's that in my cupboard? What's that in my cupboard? And it would have to deal with that and go, actually, it's just sitting there. It's not doing anything. I'm OK with that. And then as soon as it was OK with it, take it out and put something else in. Then take that out, and put something else in. Then take that out and put something else in. And I think it was genuinely, it was something like two days before the dog walked out into the garden voluntarily. They were able to get the dog to walk out and go to the toilet by itself. Something like a week later, they said the dog now goes out the front door for a walk. They put its lead on and it walks voluntarily out the front door. Hadn't done this in a year. And then it was a couple of months later, they shared a video of it going on, going camping with them. They took the dog camping, which would have been inconceivable. Um, and all that was achieved just by teaching the dog something we all have to learn every single day, which is how to cope when you're slightly outside your comfort zone. The naivety of the trainer to say, let's never put this dog out of the com its comfort zone meant that it never learned anything. So a year later, it was still exactly where it was. So sometimes we just have to look at real life and go, this is not real life. This would not happen. Which is the saddest part of that story is the fact that the positive only trainers probably made that dog suffer more in that year. Than, Absolutely. Than any type of sort of of the work you did because that dog sat in that cupboard petrified. Honestly, it was awful. It was, And the owners were so, they were two of the nicest people. And can you imagine how upset they were? In their mind, they'd rescued this dog. And now they felt like monsters because the dog was so traumatized living with them. They felt terrible. And they'd paid all these people to come out before and help. And all they'd done is actually make it worse. The dog was now saying, I'm not going to move at all. If that dog had still been on the streets of Romania, it would be moving all the time. By rescuing it, they put it in a situation where the dog was afraid to move. And a year later was still afraid to move. And that, again, I talk about fallout all the time. That is the real world fallout from what the trainers had advised her to do or advised them to do. They doomed that dog to failure. Unfortunately, we can all just go online now, do an online course written by somebody who knows as much about dog training as I know about nuclear fission. And they write this course, they sell it and people buy it. They have no idea. There's a saying I say all the time, you don't know what you don't know. And these people think they're now qualified. They've got this qualification. They couldn't train Ivy up a wall. It's not that they don't want to. Nobody deliberately becomes a crap trainer, but they don't know yet what they don't know. And it may take them years or even decades to find that out. And when you first put up the course, as you know, Rob, I was going to, I literally thought, I'm going to go do this course. And then I was speaking to somebody and I thought, in the position I hold in this company, if I went and got the label of trainer, People would think that I would then know what to do. And at the moment, they don't ask me what they should do. Or they sort of ask me, but they say, where do I go find the information? I almost try to not be a trainer on purpose. Because a lot of people think that people ask me things I could probably answer now just from part fashion, from what I've Claire and Jem and Emma and everybody else has said to me. I could probably regurgitate what they said. But it is very dangerous to have a label like trainer. And because people see you as the authority and they don't know how long it actually took you to become that authority. If it took you three hours um, from Woucher, they don't know that. They think you know more than they do. And I think that is what makes it scary, you know, whether it's a with traditional trainers. I think the one thing that potentially goes in their favour is people know normally that it's come from experience of training their dog. 
the positive, the extreme positive, they almost bring with it this hype, this idea or this feeling they give to people under them that they know what they're on about because they come from science and they come from backed research. And that's quite a dangerous place to live, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Again, because there's so much of what I read and see and hear that I think in theory, I absolutely get where you're coming from. And in a laboratory condition where everything was sterile and controlled, I can absolutely see why in time you would get the result with the dog that you want. But unfortunately, we're not in those conditions. We're in a real world with a client who has to go to work. They've got to take their children to school. They can only invest so much time in this theory. And of course, what happens is it fails. What we have to do is give owners training that will work in the real world. There's no point in saying, I want you to leave the house for three seconds every day, dozens of times, and hopefully in a month, you'll be able to leave for five minutes. That's just not realistic. That dog won't stay in that house. You failed the owner. And so we have to give them training that actually will work. Otherwise, what's the point? But as you say, now everyone's got a diploma, everyone's got a uh, some certificate that says they've done a course. And so the presumption is this person must know what they're doing. But as you said, there are courses that you can do in two days, do them in a weekend that will now give you some piece of paper that says you're now qualified as a dog behaviorist or as a dog trainer, you're now an expert. And of course, the reality is they're not. And it may be that good intentioned as they are, it might be years before they actually work out that they're not very good at this. But then what do they do? They go, okay, well, now I know I'm not very good. I don't want to have to start all over again. So a lot of them will just carry on with that rhetoric because that's safer for them than having to admit they got it wrong. What happens to their clients? I it, it just does, It's sort of mind-boggling, you know, as we go through it. Gem, I'm going to pull you into, in here because I'm really interested because obviously we've had lots of people chatting about different things. What made you as... The whole group knows you and trusts you and loves you to death. What made you decide you wanted to go and do this course? Um, so, as you know, my background was training horses, which is very different to training dogs. But in the same respect, if you gave a horse choice to choose what it wanted to do and then reward it for doing the right thing, I'd be very flat by now and dead. Um, so I very much took on that approach that I'd used with the horses with training my own dogs. And that's how I went through my dog training for the last 10 years. Um, I got into dog, gun dog training three years ago when I got red, my cocker. Um, I was lucky enough to have decent gun dog trainers that weren't what we'd call old school and they were hands off. So in that respect, I was lucky. I got hooked on the gun dog training side of it and decided that. I wanted to get back into animal training. And if that meant I had to deal with people again, that's fine. <laughs> um, but I couldn't find anywhere that I wanted to go and do the necessary training to do that. I mean, I had a good solid foundation of how to train dogs, um, but I wanted sort of some backing, I suppose. So that's why I went to Rob, because I wanted someone to give me that backing and sort of acknowledge that I had a competence level that I could go away and train dogs um, and do that and like I say I'd looked at various other things and what you'd read they were a lot of them were purely positive and I thought even then that I couldn't see how that would work and it wasn't something I wanted to pay thousands and thousands of pounds 
to be qualified in if I didn't fully believe in it. Um, and then obviously when Claire and John introduced me to Robert's course, then that, that was a no-brainer, really. I joined up and we're here today. So now that you've done it and you're, you've been introduced, or I, I totally understand what you mean, because I think I sort of feel similar to probably where you did before you do it, apart from wanting to be a trainer bit, is the Prama outline literally is the ethos you were looking for, yeah? Because that made sense. And exactly what you just said, because I come from a horse background as, as well, you can't just, please, please do what I've asked. Please don't kill me today, please, please, because you would die. You've, yes, you have to correct a horse consistently. You sit on top of it all the time, and every single moment is some type of correction. So when you read about and understood and clearly explained to you the Prama thing, did that fit in with what you were looking for from a common sense, middle of the road perspective? Definitely. Yeah, definitely. I mean, at the end of the day, we're, we're mostly reward based and that's how I worked my dogs. But equally, they do need that correction. Um, and with Rob's minimal aversive, that just fitted it perfectly. Thank you very much for doing um, this podcast with us. I hope you've all enjoyed listening to part one and part two of this very in-depth conversation about how we can find the middle ground that most of our group are looking for. So a big thanks to Rob, big thanks to the CIA, and thank you to all the instructors that joined us for this fantastic podcast. Goodbye, everybody. Thank you. Bye. 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 B